It's Thursday, April 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Florida Representative Matt Gates is currently under investigation by the Department of Justice for an alleged sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl and possibly paying for her to travel across state lines. Gates, for his part, denies the allegations and says that it's all part of a $25 million extortion plot by a former DOJ official. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post, joins us for what we know about this investigation. Next, a new study by Pfizer shows that their vaccine is 100% effective against symptomatic COVID-19 in 12 to 15-year-olds. There were over 2,200 adolescents involved in the study, and all will be followed for two years to track long-term effectiveness and safety. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. Finally, DoorDash and other food delivery apps were a lifeline for many restaurants that were trying to stay open during the pandemic. But in return for doing business with these apps, commission fees were imposed in the 20 to 30% range of the total order. Some states and cities imposed caps on these commissions, but DoorDash just tacked on other fees directly to consumers. Cyrus Farvar, investigative tech reporter at NBC News, joins us for the fight against delivery commission fees. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. New York Times is running a story that I have traveled with a 17-year-old woman, and that is verifiably false. People can look at my travel records and see that that is not the case. What is happening is an extortion of me and my family involving a former Department of Justice official. Joining us now is Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Philip. You bet. Florida Representative Matt Gates has been in uh, the news very recently. Early in the week, we heard that uh, there was a possibility that he was telling aides he might be leaving Congress soon or, or at least maybe not running for re-election, wanting to take a media job at possibly Newsmax or another outlet. And then after that came uh, some new allegations uh, that surfaced in the New York Times first that he was under investigation by the Department of Justice for possibly having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl and maybe paying for some travel for her. So maybe moving across state lines, which is another uh, big problem there. Uh, So, Philip, tell us what's going on with Representative Matt Gates right now. Your articulation is not much less than what we actually know. So the New York Times original report suggests the Department of Justice, beginning under the Trump administration, it's worth noting, had begun uh, investigating whether... Representative Gates had been involved in this relationship with a 17-year-old girl, and if as part of that he had paid for her to cross state lines, which then introduces new federal potential criminal charges related to sex trafficking, that you know you can't cross state lines with the minor, so on and so forth. Uh, so that's really what the New York Times report initially said. Now, the response from Representative Gates uh, went sort of sideways from that in interesting and unexpected ways, which I'm happy to get into if, if now is the appropriate time to do so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, he obviously sure. denied the allegations. I think uh, one of the next places we can go to is he did an interview with uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, kind of talking about it at the end of it. You know, Tucker Carlson even said that was one of the weirdest interviews I've ever done. So uh, things kind of went a little haywire. So uh, let's explain some of that. And then we'll talk about how these allegations surfaced, because it's connected to a former uh, uh, ally of his in Florida. But yeah, let's talk about some right. of the weirder turns that it took. Yeah. So essentially, the initial response from Gates was a very specific denial of the travel allegation. 
perhaps recognizing the added weight of that charge. But then he made these assertions both on Twitter and on Carlson's show that suggested that he was actually the target of an extortion scheme, that someone, a former Department of Justice official, had reached out to him to try and get $25 million in payments in order to keep this story from becoming a big deal and or to get a pardon from President Biden, which seems extremely unlikely for a lot of different reasons. But this was the charge, the Gates race. And he said that he he had had his father speak with this former Department of Justice official and that they had all this evidence that there was this extortion scheme and that tomorrow there was supposed to be this big down payment on the extortion scheme. And that's why the Times broke the story in order to you know, someone linked it to the Times so that it would ruin their counter investigation. I mean, just this really, really odd sort of response. And, you know, look, we're early enough in this thing that we don't necessarily know what's accurate and what isn't. I will say, though, that there is an extensive track record of legislators facing really serious charges coming up with sort of hard to believe <laughs> counter stories which right. don't pan out. So we'll see if this is a scenario like that. You know, and as you mentioned, this investigation was brought up under the Trump administration, under Bill Barr, the attorney general at the time. Matt Gates is a big supporter of President Trump. Uh, you know, he was there at Capitol Hill on, on January 6th trying to oppose the certification for Joe Biden. As you mentioned, he says this is just a big extortion plot. And I think he's currently engaged right now. But at the time, this was supposed to be right. about two years ago. He was a bachelor and, you know, dating a few uh, women, uh, dating around. And, you know, he says that, you know, in his single days, he's provided for women. He's been a, a, a generous partner and that right now they're trying to make this look like there's criminal action here when he's just kind of a nice guy. That's how he's positioning the whole thing. I mean, look, when you're when you're facing potential criminal charges along these lines, you're going to do your best to, to respond. I mean, you know, neither of us and very few people in America are in a position to evaluate the veracity of what he's saying there. So, you know, we can just sort of let that sit. But it is the case, as you mentioned earlier, that he had this. There's this other Florida politician who after last summer was charged with sex trafficking and, you know, a variety of other charges, you know, some really sort of unusually exotic behavior, even for an elected official. But that this investigation, according to the Times and then post-confirmation, actually grew out of that other probe that resulted in sex trafficking charges last summer against another Florida elected official. So it's not as though this is totally out of the blue. And I think it's really important, too, to consider the context of what you started out with, which was this idea that, you know, maybe he might go to Newsmax, Right. Even as far back as February, during the second impeachment trial of the former president, Gates had sort of flirted with this idea of, well, maybe I'll leave my job and you know, become an impeachment attorney helping defend the president. And that he has repeatedly, you know, over the course of the past two months or so, expressed a willingness to leave his position, you know, a position that he's been twice reelected to the House, certainly suggests that he was potentially looking to step away from the House. And that often is a marker of someone who recognizes that their political future might be somewhat compromised. Uh, you right. know, just finally, obviously, we're going to learn more about this as, as this kind of story unfolds. But, you know, Matt Gates, as I mentioned, a big supporter of President Trump. He was out there. He's been on conservative media and just doing a lot of media hits many, many times last year. You know, he's got some questionable tweets out there you mentioned in your article that haven't really aged well. You know, so we're just going to keep seeing a lot more of him and, and kind of digging into his life now. One of the reasons this is getting so much attention is simply because Matt Gates went out of his way to be a locus of attention in American politics, right? He was averaging 87 minutes on Fox News every month, which is a lot of airtime, right? right? You know, there's a lot of time spent on Fox News. He's very engaged on social media. He sort of embraced this new style in which politicians will attack the other side on social media. He was very much someone who engaged in that sort of behavior. 
you know, and so he gave himself a national profile, and now he's definitely seen the downside of that. Philip Bump, national correspondent at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thanks. This is like really a high level of efficacy. 100% of kids were vaccinated. No side effects that we're seeing so far. So we've got to have the FDA do the full evaluation, but I think this is terrific. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Sure. Thanks for having me. Wanted to get a quick update, some more good news on the vaccine front. Pfizer and their partner, BioNTech, uh, has just uh, released some data about how well the vaccine works with kids ages 12 to 15 years old. And they said that the vaccine was 100% effective against symptomatic COVID-19. This was a study of over 2,000 kids in that age range. So, uh, Karen, tell us a little bit more about what we're finding out. Right. It, I guess, couldn't be better uh, than 100%. We don't have any evidence of severe disease. Most kids in that age group don't get severe disease. But presumably, if it's preventing any symptoms, it's also preventing severe disease in those rare cases. And the next steps are going to be, obviously, to apply for emergency use authorization in that age range right there. Uh, What are we expecting? How long might that take? It's really up to the FDA. Presumably, they'll apply in the next couple of days. The FDA has been taking only two to three weeks to consider applications for drug approvals. They've been obviously prioritizing issues around around COVID. So I would expect that they could do it pretty quickly and get these vaccines out and available to teenagers, younger teenagers. So Pfizer, when it was first approved, was given approval uh, for 16 to 18 year olds as well as adults because they had included some younger people in their in their trials. So this would extend it down to 12. It's just uh, really great news and amazing that we were lucky enough to be able to get it right the first time around, at least with the first two major vaccines, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna one. And we're on our way to getting it approved for even younger ages so that everybody can get vaccinated. Tell me a little bit more about the trial. There was about 18 kids uh, who got the placebo that came down with COVID-19. And all of the participants are going to be monitored for two years on this one. That's standard with vaccine trials that you follow people for two years. Generally, approval is not given until two years out because you want to see the regulators want to see how long the vaccine protection lasts. In this case, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, they didn't wait that long, but they will continue to follow the kids just as they followed the older adults. As you said, there were 2,260 12 to 15 year olds in this trial. Half got the placebo, half got the active vaccine. And of the kids who got COVID, who got symptomatic disease, none of them was in the the active group. The company is now stepping down also to younger kids. So they've started a trial already in six to 11-year-olds, and they're going to start next week, I believe, in two to five-year-olds, and then sometime later in six-month to two-year-olds. Yeah, and Moderna has also done some of the same studying younger age groups. So very good news on that front right there. Do we get any more information about coverage for the variants? Uh, I don't know if they were testing specifically for that in these uh, younger age ranges, but have we learned any more about the effectiveness still holding up with those? We haven't at this point, not from this study. Dr. Fauci today on the White House briefing was very clear that he thinks that the vaccines will be protective against the variants we know about now based on data he's seen. But the federal government did just announce five, 10 minutes ago that they are launching a study specifically to look at that to make sure that the vaccines are holding against these variants. And probably what it is, is they're a little bit less effective against the variants, but that they will still provide protection, particularly against severe disease, hospitalization, death, that sort of thing. 
Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. DoorDash is taking, off the top, is taking 15% of that $14. So if you do the math, that's 2 bucks and 10 cents. Then it will tack on a $2, quote-unquote, Oakland fee. And so this is what DoorDash is adding onto that so the customers are paying because it cannot charge as much commission as it otherwise would have wanted to to Grand Lake Kitchen. Joining us now is Sarus Farvar, investigative tech reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Sarus. My pleasure. I wanted to talk about an interesting thing with uh, going on with our restaurants and uh, delivery apps. Throughout the pandemic, obviously, restaurants had to shut down in many places for extended periods of time. The only option available to them were delivery options and to-go options. And this is really where these delivery apps like DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub really stepped in and kind of dominated that market. For a lot of restaurants, it was their lifeline. They needed these third-party apps to help them deliver. But the other thing that happened was just a bunch of commission fees that were posed on the restaurants. Um, They had to pay extra to be able to deal with these third-party apps. And then on top of that, extra fees for the consumers. So right now what we're seeing is a lot of uh, cities, states, uh, localities impose commission caps on what these third-party apps can charge restaurants, and it's just causing a whole mess of other problems. So, Sarus, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. Yes. As you, as you say, a lot of restaurants nationwide are really struggling during the pandemic, which we are obviously still uh, in the thick of. And yes, as you say, uh, some places around the country, some restaurants are being allowed to reopen in person. Where I live in Oakland, California, here in Alameda County, restaurants are allowed to open at 25 percent capacity as of a couple of weeks ago. But still, that pales in comparison to what they were able to do prior to the pandemic. So, yes. Many restaurants and cafes and eateries are still relying on various third-party delivery services like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Grubhub are the the biggest ones. And what my reporting shows is that while a number of localities, uh, cities, counties, and in some cases states, have imposed commission caps on what DoorDash and similar companies can charge the restaurants to be listed on their platform and sort of the cut that they take to facilitate that sale, and those caps often are at 15% of the value of the order, what my reporting shows is that in most instances, DoorDash in particular have added on additional fixed fee supplementary surcharges or fees that are payable by the customer. And those range from a buck fifty to two bucks commonly, and in some cases, two fifty. And in your story, you profiled a restaurant called Grand Lake Kitchen. And you talked about one of their popular items, avocado toast. It was $14. Explain the price breakdown once it comes to all the fees and everything. This ends up being a total of $19.40. This is without tip for the delivery drivers. But explain that and the commissions and all these fees that get added on. You know, avocado toast, I think, is something that a lot of people uh, like to point to as a symbol of... uh, a high-priced but popular uh, breakfast item here in California Definitely. and many other places. But in any case, Grandly Kitchen uh, here in Oakland, they do have a $14 avocado toast on their menu. So if you go to the restaurant, like I said, you know, sitting outside or sitting inside, you would pay 14 bucks there, and then you would tack on sales tax. Everybody can understand that. And then a tip that would go to the Grandly Kitchen, you know, wait staff and cooking staff. 
And I think people kind of understand that universe. Now, if you want to order that same $14 avocado toast through DoorDash, DoorDash is taking off the top is taking 15% of that $14. So if you do the math, that's two bucks and 10 cents, then it will tack on a $2 quote unquote Oakland fee. And so this is what DoorDash is adding onto that. So the customers are paying because it cannot charge as much commission as it otherwise would have wanted to, to Grand Lake Kitchen. So the customer's paying that extra two bucks. It also adds an additional $2.10 quote unquote service fee it's also including uh, 9.25% county sales tax, a buck thirty. That's normal. So that brings the total to, uh, if you're keeping the math together, $19.40. And that is even before a tip that would go to the DoorDash driver. So yeah. that's like already a fair bit higher than what the kind of sticker price is, if you will. And one of the complaints that I've heard from restaurant owners like Macy Wassum, the co-owner of Grand Lake Kitchen, is that... When people order through DoorDash, they're tipping the drivers who should be tipped. I think most people would agree, but they're not even given the opportunity to tip the cooking and wait staff at that location that actually cooked that food for that customer. States, cities, localities are trying to impose more of these caps, but the fight is going back and forth. The restaurants say they can't keep up with them, especially right now as they're trying to rebuild and reopen. DoorDash from themselves, they, they were just barely profitable this year, $32 million or some something like that, but they've been around for many years now and haven't made a profit. So, you know, the difficulties lie on both sides, really. Yeah, but I think, so. I mean, just to be clear, uh, it was only in the second quarter of 2020 that DoorDash made its first profit ever, $32 million. But the company is billions of dollars in debt. In the third quarter and the fourth quarter of last year, the company lost a combined $355 million. So I think DoorDash, like many other companies out of Silicon Valley, lose lots of money, billions of dollars for years and years and years. You know, I think the playbook is to try to capture the market, in this case, the market of food delivery, and eventually regain profitability or perhaps be acquired by a larger player and essentially kind of wipe out that huge amount of debt that is incurred in the first few years of a, of a company like that. But you're right, there is this back and forth between cities that want to, I think, try to support their local restaurants and eateries by imposing these commission caps. And then you have companies like DoorDash and their lobbyists and supporters that say, look, cities should not stand in the way of two businesses who want to you know, make a deal with one another. So, for example, on March 15th, on the same day, Akron, Ohio and Huntington Beach, California, both considered a fee cap. Akron, Ohio passed it unanimously and Huntington Beach narrowly declined to pass it by a four to three vote. You know, in both instances, a lobbyist for DoorDash, a guy by the name of Chad Horrell, called in and left nearly identical public comment voicemails for the city council members right before those meetings. So yes, these bills are continuing to be discussed in, you know, city halls and state houses around the country. Sarus Farvar, investigative tech reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.